Well, let's um, pray and then we'll start to look at Psalm 63. Dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your servant, David. And we thank you for the words that you put on his heart as a prayer to you, even in times of distress. And we ask now that as we look to um, your holy scripture, your written word, we ask that your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, would be manifest in our midst. That we would see him and know him and put our trust in him. And so it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. Um, if you've been, again, there are several familiar faces, so thank you for coming along. So pardon the repeat, but uh, this class, one of the things I've been doing in this class is, and I've been going on for several weeks, they give me lots of weeks to do this, which is great. Um, so I've been, uh, this is my seventh week, and we'll have one more week. And next week, we're not going to look at one psalm in particular, but we're going to look at several psalms and look at the, at the predictions and the expectation for the coming son of David even in the Psalms, because we know that um, God promised to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he promised that his dynasty would be eternal, that he would have a son who would sit on his throne um, forever. And we know that that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So it's particularly appropriate as we start to celebrate the season of Advent in expectation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So we'll be looking at that next week. But this is our last week to look at an individual psalm. And the individual psalm that we're looking at for today is Psalm 63. And I I don't know if you've noticed this, but over the course of these seven psalms, um, there are 14 psalms in particular that look at specific incidents within the life of David, King David. And so I've been, I haven't done all 14 of them. I've only picked seven, but this final one we've been, I've been trying to go through chronologically um, through David's life. And maybe that's just my own particularity, but there it is. So, um, so this is later on in David's life. This is one of the later Psalms while he is king. When we look at the Psalm, you'll be able to see more about why um, this is from when the time when he's king. We know about David that he's called in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1, he is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. So he was, um, not only was he a musician, we know that he played the lyre, the harp, while he was out tending his father's sheep. He was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest son in his family. And he learned music was very important for shepherds because the sheep would respond to the music and know who their shepherd was because of the song that the shepherd would play. And then he would go on. Once he was made known to the king, he went on and he was playing his instrument in King Saul's court. And that helped soothe King Saul. When he would get into a rage, he would become disturbed spiritually, emotionally, and um, and King David's music would soothe him. So we know he was a musician. It also has, um, within Second Samuel, it's kind of interesting. We talked about this a few weeks ago. There's one psalm that um, that's... Both Psalm 18, Psalm 18 and then also in 2 Samuel, it's recorded as one of the psalms that David wrote. So we know that he was writing psalms. Many of the psalms say that they are of David, and we're not sure entirely whether that means that it's believed that he wrote them himself or that he had them commissioned, or that they were written much later in the style of those written during his life. So there is some um, ambiguity about, well, which psalms were written by David, 
But there's some sense in which the titles that are given to the Psalms that we're looking at in this class have been attributed to David specifically and specifically to different events in his life. So he is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And there's also, not only did he play music, not only did he write music, but he also is well known for um, having codified all of the musical traditions and having set forth the rules about how to sing and play music during worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So that once the temple was built in his son's lifetime, all of the rules he, he set down and made um, the tradition of who would sing what, when, where, how, and why. And so the Psalms that we have, the Psalter, there are 150 Psalms. And of those Psalms, we say them in worship, don't we? Today we said Psalm 122. And the Psalms are used throughout. It's an ancient practice to use the Psalms in worship because they are, they are not just prayers to God, but there are also songs that were sung to God in ancient Israel. So um, think of those poems. Our hymns are poems. Um, some of my favorite hymns are poems written by the great poet George Herbert, and that they were later set to music. So these psalms are poems, prayers, and songs simultaneously. And some of the titles of these psalms will tell us how you're supposed to sing them, what tune you're supposed to sing them to. And I've said it before, but it bears repeating that... Um, I don't know about you, but I get songs stuck in my head. There's something about it, and um, around this time, I'm sort of no notorious in my family for having been the annoying third child who needed a four, who needed attention, and so I got it, but I was sort of bizarrely drawn to one Christmas hymn in particular, and I would always sing the Christmas carol, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. So there was one year of my young, young life, probably around age six, when I just sang it all year long. And my siblings, I, I usually would get a you know, shove or a kick or a, hey, from one of my siblings, but it was a great way to kind of needle them and get it in their heads. And then they would all be singing it as well. So it was sort of my claim to fame in my big family. Um, so, But isn't it amazing how the songs we get into our heads, they sort of get planted in there. And there's something about that that's really beautiful. So these psalms are songs to get into our heads, to get into our bloodstream so that we too, just like just like the psalmist and the person writing the psalm here, King David, we too can use these same words that were used thousands of years ago to help understand what's going on in our own lives and to help express um, not just our feelings, but also our thoughts about God, how we think about God when we're in the midst of times of trouble. And that's the other hallmark of these Psalms of David is that they very often describe, a per they're very often expressions of David in the midst of some kind of trouble. He had a pretty troubled life. We found in the early Psalms of his life that he, there were um, several chapters there in 1 Samuel where he had been anointed king. Um, the prophet Samuel had anointed him as king because the Lord had rejected King Saul. But King Saul was still sitting on the throne. And King Saul was jealous of David's popularity. And so he tried to kill David over ten times. So David was on the run. And while he was on the run, it made some good fodder for songs. Songs that were prayers and cries to the Lord for deliverance. And so those psalms are helpful for us today. And what we find today is that poor David, he had a little bit of a break, maybe like 40 years of a break, and now suddenly he's on the run again. We saw him in those early psalms running all around Israel trying to escape Saul back and forth for 17 chapters of scripture, which is a lot of 
that's a lot when you look at the, the thousands of years that are covered in some of the narratives in scripture. To spend 17 chapters describing David on the run is pretty intense. Um, but here we find that King David in his maturity at the end of his reign is on the run again. And we see this, I put this, if you turn over you'll see the title for the psalm is um, a psalm of David, so we know it's from David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. There are two times in the narratives in First and Second Samuel when David was in the wilderness of Judah. One time when he was running away from Saul, but we think that this time it's not when he's running away from Saul, but it is in fact when he is an older man fleeing from his own son, Absalom. And his own son had tried um, to usurp his throne. So what happened at the very end of David's life, does anybody remember this about David? Yeah, he's in the um, assembly hall, in the day school. Um, So that the, um, at the end of David's life, does anybody remember what happened with his children? There was a lot of strife and drama. I mean, it's like a soap opera. That's right, he did. And even before that, do you remember the strife that Absalom started to cause? What spurred his... Absalom kind of went... Absalom is one of David's sons from one of his wives, and he kind of went on a rampage. And he was enraged because of what his half-brother did to his sister, Tamar. Yeah, there's this horrible story where the eldest, the eldest of David's sons, Ammon, um, raped his half-sister... Sorry, this is not G or PG, and then and refused to marry her. The law of the time said that um, if a man took a woman against her will, then he he was married to her. That was it. You know, it was it couldn't be an act of violence or passion. It had to be a, a lifelong choice. And um, so Tamar cries out for justice, and her brother Absalom, her whole brother Absalom, says, "Come into my house. I will take care of you." And Absalom is so upset and enraged by what has happened to his beloved sister that he then takes out um, his, the conflict by, he takes matters into his own hands. He takes justice into his own hands and he lures his brother Ammon out, um, outside the city, away from his father's protection and he, and he kills him or he has him killed. And so it's just this very troubling and trying time in David's life. And we know that David also was not above sin. We know that David's great sin, does anybody remember David's great sin during his reign as king? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Remember, he he also committed uh, adultery, at least it wasn't violent adultery, and he also saw um, and then killed Bathsheba. He had Bathsheba's husband killed. And the Lord forgave him for this. He repented of it. And we hear those words in Psalm 51, which is attributed to David right at that time, of his repentance from the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And there is that sense in which God has forgiven David. And and that's true for us too. You know, our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ, but it doesn't mean that we're always spared from the consequences of our sin. And one of the one of the side effects in David's family is David feels paralyzed to be a judge within his own family. And so his the sin of his son Ammon goes unpunished by his father. And it's this lack of justice that causes Tamar to cry out 
and her whole brother Absalom to take matters into his own hands. And it's not beautiful. It's not pretty. It's pretty ugly. It's pretty sad and sorry to see this wonderful king, this man who loved the Lord, and to see the trials that come to him in his old age and come to his family in his mature years. And so Absalom, not only does he murder his own brother, but he then um, he's then the heir. And he starts to methodically try to win the hearts of the men of Israel. And he goes out and he knows the different things, that he knows the weaknesses in his father's own reign. And he sets out to steal the throne from his father. So um, when we come to see David, David on the run in 2 Samuel chapter 15, what has happened is that Absalom has finally made his bid for power. He's gone into Jerusalem. He's taken over Jerusalem. King David, rather than fight, rather than have his beloved city besieged, he very bravely, courageously, and very humbly sacrifices his own self he sacrifices his throne. He gives up his throne to his son and he flees the city rather than putting up a fight. And I just see um, David, the humble man, the wise man now in his older years. Once again, he's on the run. He goes peacefully, humbly, and um, even he even leaves behind what is perhaps the hardest thing for him because we know how much he loved worshiping God. And we see that in Psalm 30. Remember, we looked at Psalm 30 a couple weeks ago, and David is dancing and praising God when the tabernacle comes into, when the Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem, when he brings it up so that the worship of God could be right there where he is. And he's overjoyed. Well, here now, he has to leave Jerusalem. He has to leave his home. And worst of all, he has to leave the presence of the Lord. And his servants even start to bring the tabernacle out with him, bring the Ark of the Covenant out with him. And he says, no, leave it there. This is for the people of Israel. This is, you know, God is going to take care of me even when I'm apart from him. So he's even separated from the presence of the Lord. And I can't help but think of another story, another biblical story to illustrate kind of the very humility and um, the the courage of King David. And I think of that, that story of the prophet Jonah. Does anybody remember what happens with the prophet Jonah when he's on the boat? Um, he flees from the Lord. Remember, the Lord tells him to go and prophesy to the people of Nineveh, who are the sworn enemies of, of Israel. And he says, no way. And instead of going in the direction of Nineveh, he goes in the opposite direction and he goes to the ocean. How many of us have said, no way, Lord, I'm going in the opposite direction. I know you want me to do this, but I'm going in this direction. And so there he is. He's on the boat and there's this horrible storm. And the sailors all are sacrificing their gods. They're not Israelites. They don't know the Lord. And they're sacrificing their gods and they're saying, what is going on? And Jonah says, I know what it is. I've disobeyed. The Lord is the Lord of the earth and the heaven and the sea. And he wants me to go to Nineveh. And so he very humbly just says, put me in the water. Take me off the boat. And, and when they do, when he sacrifices himself, when he goes into the water, then the storm calms down and, and ceases. And so in some ways, David here is, being, is going right into the heart of the, of the storm. He's not doing what is rational. He's saying, the Lord is in charge of this. The Lord can handle this. I'm going, to, I'm going to take the path of least resistance. I'm going to take the path of humility. He's a man of war, but this time he says, I'm not fighting. 
I will go. I will not fight for my city and for my throne. So any questions about that before we um, look at the actual psalm? How would you uh, yes, sir. describe Bathsheba's husband got killed? That's right. What happens to him in overall Lord of Justice, so to speak? Right, we don't know. We don't hear a lot from him. We don't hear, yeah. right. What would you imagine? I don't know, but I think that um, I do think that he is the innocent victim in that circumstance, right? And he is—he demonstrates such um, such courage and such loyalty to David. He's not an Israelite, and do you remember that in that event he is—they come back from war. It's a time of war, and David, the man of war, the king who's supposed to lead out the armies of Israel, did not go to war with the people. He's staying back. So that's the first problem. He is not leading his people. He's kind of resting in indolence. He's staying in the palace. He's hanging out in the palace. And that's when he sees Bathsheba, who is alone. Her husband is at the front. And he sends, um, David tries to fix things once he finds out that Bathsheba's pregnant. Remember, he has Uriah brought back in. And he says, he gives all of the men raisin cakes. And he says, or he says to Uriah in particular, he says, go home. Go home and see your wife. Go home and see your wife. You've been at the front. You go home and see your wife. And he's hoping that his sin will be um, undiscovered. And Uriah refuses to because it's not fair for him to be able to go home and see his wife and none of the other men can. The other men are still in war mode. They still have their boots on. And Uriah is not going to go home and rest. And so Uriah demonstrates great loyalty and faithfulness to the people of Israel. And you see throughout the history of the people of Israel that when a non-Israelite attaches himself the way Uriah attaches himself to um, the people of Israel and the kingdom of Israel, he is really seeking to worship God. There is that one true God that Israel worships. And so anyone else that's attaching themselves to the people of Israel in that way um, is, is in all likelihood drawn into that worship of the one true God. So he's faithful. So we don't, we don't know, and the Bible doesn't say what happens to him, but we know that he demonstrates faith in his faithfulness. Does that help? Yeah, uh, it's in the time for it, I guess. But it's sort of a general problem, it seems to me, in the Old Testament when when bad things happen to good people. Good people mm-hmm. because of somebody else like David. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's an unsolved, unsolved but it's an unsolved thing not just in the Old Testament it's an unsolved thing today what happens when bad things happen to good people and the and you see the same thing with Tamar what about Tamar you don't hear from her again sure Absalom has revenged himself on Ammon but do you think that that's what Tamar wanted no she just wanted to turn back the clock I bet you anything I don't know that that necessarily brought her peace um, so what happens with Tamar? We don't hear from her for the rest of her. We just know that she lived out the rest of her life in desolation. And so there's this sense in which when we look to Scripture, when we ask the question, God, why do good people suffer? Why do, why do the innocent suffer, essentially? Because when we say good people, when we look at sin, we're all, we're all guilty in some measure. But when the suffering is not related to our own sinfulness, but is rather related to the sinfulness of another, and there's injustice, we have to turn to God. And that's where the character, his character of holiness is reassuring. 
You know, we see his his justice and his mercy are two sides of his character that are held so wonderfully together in the New Testament especially, but you see it all throughout the Old Testament as well. He's holy and he will not put up with wrongdoing. And the good news about that is that those who are victims of wrongdoing, the innocent like Uriah and Tamar, will be vindicated one day because God will punish uh, wrongdoing on some measure. And then you also see that um, he's merciful to wrongdoers and he has mercy on us when we do wrong as we repent and turn to him and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're forgiven. So there is that sense of his justice and his mercy operating together and um, his justice brings hope and courage to those who are downtrodden, to the poor, the helpless, the needy, um, the victims of the world. So I hope that helps and answer a question. Um, let's start to look at the psalm itself, and we're going to turn over. So turn over your handout. And this psalm, uh, before we read it, let's just remember, does anybody remember the last couple of times I've started to use this idea of laments and de- psalms of thanksgiving and deliverance, that there's this sense in which David, in his distress, cries out to the Lord in the psalms. So many of the psalms find themselves either on one side or the other side of trouble, with a capital T. And for David, it's usually that someone's trying to kill him. For some reason, he's just always running for his life. I hope that that's not our situation of trouble. But when we think about David's trouble and we think about whatever the trouble or the sorrow is in our own life that we cannot escape, that we must face and deal with, um, these psalms can be a comfort for us. So the psalms of lament show David to be in the middle of the trouble itself. He's crying out to God and saying, will you deliver me? Come help me. I need your help. And then the Psalms, so that's on this side of, or I, I've been doing it on this side. That's on this side of trouble. Here's trouble. And then the Psalms of Thanksgiving show David on the other side of trouble, having come through it. And he's come through it. He's no longer anxious. He's no longer crying out to the Lord in his fear and anxiety. He is singing a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. And very often he's calling everyone else to come on in. Hey, guess what the Lord did for me? I was in trouble. He delivered me. Now we all need to worship him and praise him. He's on this side of trouble. So what we're going to find in this psalm, um, you're going to, I'm going to ask you once we read it, so keep your eyes out, open your ears, which side of trouble do you think David finds himself on this time? So let's read. I'll read Psalm um, 63, verse 1. And if you want to follow with verse 2, and we'll keep on going, I'll do the odds and you do the evens. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. But those who seek to to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of of the earth. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. 
The first thing, do you see that last verse? But the king shall rejoice in God. That's how we know with confidence that this psalm happens later in David's life because he twice finds himself, as the title says, twice he finds himself running away, running from someone trying to kill him in the wilderness of Judah. The first time he's running from Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 20, or chapter uh, 23, and then it's in um, 2 Samuel chapter 15 that he's running from Absalom. But he talks about himself as the king. He is the king on the throne, and now he's a king on the run. So um, where does David find himself in trouble? I said I'd ask you, which side of trouble is he on in this psalm? Is he in the midst of it, or is he already through it? What do you think? Well, somebody's trying to destroy his life. That's right, that those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. And the title tells us he's in the wilderness of Judah. He hasn't found his way back to Jerusalem. Um, Yeah, he's still in the midst of it. Someone is still seeking to destroy his life. Do you see that? And yet, do you see the, quali- the emotional quality of the psalm? Is it different than some of the other ones when he's been in trouble and in trial? Um, sometimes in some of the laments, when he finds himself right in the midst of trouble, the, he's crying out with a lot of anxiety, with a lot of distress, with protest. Even last week, he was protesting to the Lord, saying, what are you doing? <laughs> Aren't you going to come and deliver me? And there's a grace in that for us, that when we're in the midst of trouble, we can cry out to God without editing what we're saying. He can handle all the full range of our emotions, our fear, our anxiety, our anger, even our, our despair. He can handle all of that in a way that other human beings around us can't um, because he's God. He already knows we're experiencing it, going through it. He knows we feel it. We might as well say it to him. Well, here what we see is that um, this has a different quality to it. Here, King David, he's calmer. And he we don't actually hear a petition in this psalm Instead, we hear about his thirst. We hear about um, the worship that he remembers in the past and the worship that he hopes for in the future. And he hears and he states this confidence that God will deliver him. He doesn't even ask for God to deliver him. He just knows God will deliver him. Um, And so let's look at that. Why is this psalm different? Well, first of all, he starts out that with this um, very literal and spiritual thirst in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. And he starts out, again, that's the relationship. There is a relationship here. God is his God, the God of a covenantal love. And all throughout scripture, when God first initiates that covenant with the people of Israel through Abraham and then Abraham's descendants all along, one of the aspects of that covenantal relationship is that kind of possessiveness. Just like we say, well, this is my mother, this is my husband, this is my sister. There is that possessiveness to our personal relationships. And there is a personal relationship with the covenant God. So God who um, creates personal relationships with those who follow him. He is calling upon this God. David is saying, God, you are my God. You are in relationship with me, and I know that. And then he talks about um, this experience of being in the wilderness, in the very literal wilderness, reminds himself of a literal and spiritual thirst. Um, So in that arid, dry, weary, dusty land, as David is probably literally thirsty, he looks back and he longs for the life that he has lived. And he's not longing for the palace, he's not longing for the gems, he's not longing for the power. 
He's longing for the presence of God and the presence of God specifically in his sanctuary. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. The presence of God is what he thirsts for. There is that spiritual thirst. We see this kind of spiritual thirst all throughout scripture. And right now, I don't know how many of you are thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm always thirsty and I never notice it. I have to like actively, it's one of the particularities of my very flesh. And I'm sure we each have particularities of um, our own personhood, but that is one of the things I find myself doing. I um, I started fainting when I was probably in high school. I think I was, I'm a fainter, by the way. I kind of look like I ought to be a fainter, don't I? A little delicate, a little, yeah, that's me. Well, <laughs> so you'll know if you see me fall over, it's just me fainting. Um, but I literally, I fainted when I was 14 in health class, and it was horribly embarrassing when you're 14 and you want to be cool and um, my health class teacher decided to diagnose me in front of my classroom so quickly very quickly the whole school thought I had epilepsy because she thought I had a grand mal seizure but when in fact I had just fainted it was hot in that really summery classroom we had no air conditioning and I was thirsty and there I just up and fell over so I was thirsty and I think of that with our thirst it's so all throughout scripture thirst is used to describe this longing for God that exists within every human soul we long for God and nothing will satisfy our thirst how many of us would rather I'd rather have a diet coke than a glass of water I'd rather have a cup of coffee I'd rather have a glass of grapefruit juice I'd rather have anything except water because water's free there are no calories um, and it's free to me. It just does good things for me, but I don't want it. I want something that's going to taste good. I want something that's interesting. I want something I have to buy. I mean, I, even going to you know amusement parks or public places, how often do we think, well, I won't bring a water bottle because then I can fill it with my own water and I don't have to pay for water. We don't mind paying for the $4 bottle of water. Then we can complain about it. The water tastes better. We feel like, well, it's Fiji water, so it's really fancy and expensive. It's good for me. Um, this is the special water that I need to drink. No, just plain water. Tap water will do. Healthy water will do. But it's too. It's free. I don't want it. I want to be able to pay for my water. And that's something about the Holy Spirit of God, that God gives his spirit to those who believe in him freely. And we see that in John chapter 4 where Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman. He um, encounters her by a well, by water, and it's ancient water, water that Jacob discovered. And she says to him, he promises her, everyone who drinks of this water at the well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Sir, give me this water. She wants that water. And I want that water even though I trick myself into thinking I don't. And I'll find any water. I'll drink water from a broken cistern. I'll drink water from anything. I'll drink water, um, anything that's not real, true, pure water from God. And that's true spiritually. I mean, each one of us seeks after something to fill the very depths of our spiritual need. And it's just a part of being human, a part of being fallen, post-Eden, this is what we do. And it's helpful to recalibrate and say, well, what am I trying to satiate my thirst with? What am I filling myself with that is not really going to quench my thirst? 
Um, why am I drinking um, more coffee when all I need is a nice tall glass of water? So, um, sorry if you've been drinking coffee during coffee hours. It's still good. But um, so I think of this literal and physical, uh, uh, literal, physical, and spiritual thirst are connected. And in the New Testament, we see it's connected with the very presence of God in the Holy Spirit. So through faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in our midst and available to us. And that is what David is longing for. He is longing for the presence of God. Only the presence of God will satisfy, will bring him joy, and quench his spiritual thirst. So he's longing for God's very presence. He's longing for God's very being. He's remembering the worship that he he experienced in God's presence in the tabernacle in verse 2 and verse 4. He remembers that. And remembering that and knowing God's character helps him to say, I'm going to praise you again. I'm going to praise you again in the tabernacle. And he even continues to praise God and think of him on his bed. In verses 5 through 7, my soul will be satisfied as with rich and fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. In his wakefulness, he is um, he is attuned to the Lord. In his wakefulness and his watchfulness, in these dire circumstances, he is more able to listen and hear from the Lord. He um, he throws himself on the Lord's mercy, and it's a throwing of himself on the Lord's mercy with great confidence. He doesn't sound anxious. He's not worried here. He's not crying out with fear. He's just saying, I will be satisfied. The Lord will satisfy my thirst. And now the image is no longer just that of water, water in the desert. But here the image is of a great feast. The Lord will satisfy our souls as with rich and fat food. Um, And then All of this. So he expresses this confidence that he will worship again. And then he also goes on to um, assert his confidence in the deliverance that the Lord will give him from his enemies. He doesn't even have to ask, but he asserts with confidence. He says in verse 9, those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They'll be given over. They won't survive. So Excuse me, I need more water. Um, (laughs) When I get like this, it's actually because I'm thirsty. (laughs) So if I sound weepy, it's just thirst. Um, But the why, when we go to the why, why, why is David and how is David able to assert with such confidence God's gracious goodness? Well, we see three assertions in verse three. Your steadfast love is better than life. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Remember that psalm where it's every other line talks about the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Well, here David is saying the hesed, that covenantal love and faithfulness, that's not just a feeling on God's part, but it's an action. It's a commitment of kindness and faithfulness to those who are in relationship with him. Well, the steadfast love of the Lord better even than life. It's as though he's saying, if I were to die tomorrow, if my son were to kill me, it doesn't matter. Even in the midst of this dire and very dramatic circumstance, he's confident. He's confident because he would rather have what God has to offer him in his own love than his own life. And we see this also in the Gospels. In in John, again, in John, the, uh, the Lord Jesus says to the disciples, he says, um, are you going to go away too? And some of the disciples go away. And the apostles say to him, Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And we have believed and come to know that you are the Christ. Jesus Christ has the words of eternal life, and relationship and love with him is better than even life itself. And we see this all throughout the history of the church, that there were those who knew the love of God so much that they were willing even to give up their very lives, that their lives were considered as nothing because they knew that they were precious in God's sight and because they knew that the Lord was the Lord of life and Lord even over death. And so there's this faith in the resurrection, even here in the pages of the Old Testament. Do you see that? That um, the love of God will raise us from the dead, even in the midst of the deaths of our daily life, whether it's the death of a loved one or a sickness, whether it's trial circumstances that we would have never chosen for ourselves. When we find ourselves in the midst of trouble, and remember, trouble with capital T for David was someone was trying to kill him. Someone was always trying to kill us. For us, it might be something else. But God is there even in the midst of trouble. And his love is even better than the ordering of our circumstances according to our plans. And so I quote for you from um, Philippians chapter 3. And these are the words of St. Paul. And these are words where he too is asserting that God's love is better even than life. That the love of God in Christ Jesus is better even than life itself. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's assertion of faith in Jesus Christ is um, so clear here. He is he knows he will be raised from the dead. He knows that anything that happens to him in this life is not worth worrying about because he has Jesus. Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Will anything else satisfy us? No, absolutely not. Only in Christ will we be satisfied spiritually. Only in Christ will, be will we be saved and delivered, even from death. And so that moves us on to verse 7. In verse 7, he grounds his hope and his faith in the future. The, the fact that he knows he will praise God again. Um, and he grounds that in verse 7 on the help that God has given him in the past. And so for us, too, in the midst of whatever future, current trouble we have, as we look to the future, we might be tempted to fear. But when we look back to our past, and we look at God's faithfulness in the past, the deliverance that he has wrought for us in, in various circumstances that are so specific to us through Christ Jesus and in faith, um, through the faith that we have in Christ Jesus, then we can have confidence in the present and real sure hope for the future. Because God's character doesn't change. His steadfast love doesn't change. And so this final image of why, why does David have such confidence and how can we have confidence like David? Well, I turn you to verse, verse 8. Verse 8 says, My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Here again is an image of such closeness and intimacy with the Lord. And I think of this, we often think that our grip and our grasp on God is strong and sure it depends on us. Well, Lord, I read my Bible every day. I'm a good person. Um, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, and everything's going to be okay. But that puts um, the strength of our grip on us. 
and we in our weakness are not strong enough to grip God even in the times of trouble. But the beauty of it is that his grip is stronger and he is holding us in the palm of his hand. And so I think I didn't get a projector and set up this image for you, but I think of so many images I've seen from so many movies where there's some kind of small character, whether it's someone who got shrunk, honey, I shrunk the kids, or whether it's someone who's in relation to a giant like Godzilla, and there's a little tiny person, and that little tiny person is usually being lifted up off the ground. I mean, don't, haven't you seen this countless times? I think it's better with CGI. It's actually somewhat more believable, although still weird. But whenever you see this tiny person being lifted up by a giant or lifted up by someone much bigger than themselves, isn't it like there's an earthquake? and they grasp onto the hand. Don't you see someone clinging to the ground, clinging to whatever they can get a hold on in this hand that's lifting them up, and yet the hand is holding and carrying them. And that's the image that I have. Here David is in the palm of God. He is clinging to God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, even in the midst of this horrible adversity. His son is trying to kill him. His son is doing terrible things within his family. And yet he is confident and sure because he knows that he rests right in the palm of his good and gracious, loving father. And so that's true for us as well, that whatever we're in the midst of, we are not, our deliverance is sure and certain, not because of our grip on God, but because of his grip on us. My soul clings to you, but your right hand, God's right hand, his right hand of power and strength upholds us. So let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus, through whom you have gripped us with an everlasting life. You have given us forgiveness of sins. You have given us hope of life eternal. And we know that our hope is sure and certain. We will not be disappointed. And so I ask that right now you would give us hope in the midst of whatever trouble we find ourselves, that even as we cling to you, give us that sure and certain ground, um, that sure and certain footing of your own grip on us through Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen.